are wrapping up today our series called Welcome to the Table. Uh, and, and I told you, this series has kind of been kicking around in my mind and my heart for uh, about a year and a half since March of 2015. I, I kind of had a new connection with communion, and, and I wanted to teach on communion and the power of the table and started seeing all these tables in Scripture, and that I just wasn't sure how to finish the series. Uh, and then this July, a group of us uh, were in Los Angeles for a mission trip. Uh, the Los Angeles Dream Center, and we went to a Thursday night service at Angeles Temple, and a, a pastor from Colorado spoke. Uh, I remember his first name was Jonathan. I don't even remember his last name, uh, but he had a three-point message, and it was his third point. Uh, it was the things that Solomon had built, and he talked about uh, Solomon's table, and it was exactly what we needed to to cap off this series. So all uh, credit goes to Pastor Jonathan. Obviously, I'll be building and going more in-depth than, than his one point, but uh uh, I'm so excited to share this with you. I think it's so timely for what we're doing today with Mission OB, as well as what you're going to experience this week with Thanksgiving, um, and it's going to put a, a perfect cap on this series for us. If you are just joining us for the first time or, or maybe have forgotten, we've got basically two goals with this series. Our first goal is we want to, to inspire God's people to take advantage of the power of the table. We, we believe that, that there's power in the table. We saw in week one that uh, that we become one at the table. We saw in week two that we see each other differently when we come to the table. So, so our challenge is, and hopefully you've already done this, but if you haven't, you've still got uh, a couple of weeks, it is for everyone who calls City Church home, for you to initiate a meeting, uh, at, not a meeting, it's for you to initiate a connection uh, sometime this month with somebody o- over a meal, somebody from the church, man, that you maybe haven't had a chance to get to know very well or haven't spent time with in a long time. So not your people that you just go to lunch on Sunday afternoon with, but, but somebody that's not natural, that's not normal for you to eat with. And so initiate that breakfast, that lunch, that dinner, whatever. If you haven't done that yet, man, I really encourage you to take advantage of this this month uh, to, to get together, to sit down and, and watch how God builds some unity and builds some connection over the table. Our second goal is to inform us again and, and remind us of the significance of the table that God has built into our worship, the, the communion table. Uh, so, so week one, we actually looked at the Lord's Supper, and then week two, we looked at the, the Emmaus table as, uh, and the significance there. Last week, we looked at King David's table, and this week, we're going to look at his son, Solomon's table, uh, as we wrap up this series and, and see the different things that the table can teach us. In Psalm chapter 127, verse 1, it says very famously, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. It's great in- instruction for, for me as a pastor that, that unless God builds City Church, I'm wasting my time. Unless I'm following his mission, unless I'm following his plan, unless I'm following his will and his word, there, there's no point in us gathering together on Sunday mornings. He has to be the one who builds this. It's a great reminder for us if, if we build anything, if you're building a business, I believe you can insert that right there. Unless the Lord builds the business, the builders labor in vain. If you're not building it on his principles and his truth and his vision, you're going to waste your time as you build a family. I think it's very true. I got to do a wedding yesterday. One of my favorite parts of my job is getting to do weddings. And, uh, and, and as I did this wedding, I was just reminded again that, man, God needs to be the one who builds this family. If you build it on him, man, this house that you build is going to be blessed. But if you don't, you're going to labor in vain. Anything that we build. We need to be, know that he's the one who's truly building it. What's interesting about this verse is I've known it pretty much my whole life or heard it referenced even though maybe I couldn't have told you it was Psalm 127. Uh, but, but what I didn't know, what I would have assumed and was incorrect in that assumption is that David wrote this verse. 
Um, if you're like me, anytime you hear a psalm, you just think David probably wrote that. Because uh, if you think that David wrote most of the psalms. What I actually found out this week is that's even wrong. Uh, I knew David wasn't the only psalmist. But David actually only re- wrote 73 of the 150 psalms. So he came in under half. So David won the electoral college, but not the popular vote when it comes to the psalms, right? Like, like he's the guy we think of, but he didn't actually write most of them. Uh, the sons of Korah, a, a group of of musicians, uh, a group of worship leaders, wrote quite a few of them. And, and David's son Solomon actually wrote quite a few of the Psalms as well. And so Psalm 127 was actually written by Solomon. What's so interesting about that is if you know anything about Solomon, you probably know uh, a few things that you associate with him. One thing we associate with him is great wisdom. We know that, that God came to Solomon as he became king of Israel and, and said, what do you want? Name anything. And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And God said, well, because you've asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you everything else. I'm going to give you the wealth. I'm going to give you the influence. I'm going to give you the, the desires of your heart. Secondly, we know that even though he had great wisdom, he, he fell later in life. And he had many wives, and it wasn't a good thing for him. Uh, and, and so we kind of associate that with Solomon. But uh, if you know much scripturally about him, you know that Solomon was the one who was in charge of building the temple for the Lord. They, they built a, a worship center for God. Uh, And what's interesting about that is before Solomon came into power, they worshipped in a tabernacle, which was a tent. Uh, And they had this this temporary structure, which they had started that as they traveled across Egypt, or traveled across the wilderness coming out of Egypt and into the promised land. So they had this this tent that they could put up and take down and transfer. And uh, it got to the point where King David, Solomon's dad, said, you know what? It's not right that I live in a palace, that I have all this luxury and all this wonderful stuff. And God's worshipped in a tent. I need to build a great place for God's worship. I need to build something where God's people can gather and worship him. But, but what's amazing is that as David had this desire in his heart to build a temple, God actually said no. Maybe you know the reason, maybe you don't. I want to read it to you in First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3. King David says, But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Isn't it interesting that when someone wants to build something for God, God looks at how they've treated people? Hopefully there's a desire in your heart to build something for God. Hopefully there's a desire in your heart to to expand his kingdom, to to be used by him in a greater way than you, you already have. Hopefully even when we prayed this morning for greater things in your life, hopefully a piece of that prayer was, God, I want you to use me in a greater way. I believe every Christian should should have that desire in them. I know I have that desire in me. That God would use me in a greater way than he already has. But if I'm going to be used by God in a greater way, you know what the test for God is? How do you treat people? How do you treat others? You see, there's this intimate connection between uh, the, the way that we love God and the way that we love people. We see it again and again beaten into us in Scripture. Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. That's why Mission OB today, we're going to go out and we're going to love some people who maybe some people in society might consider the least. We're going to show some love to them because as we show love to them, what are we doing? We're showing love to Jesus. We're demonstrating that. As Jesus has asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's this intimate connection between the quality of our love for God and our quality of our love for people. Later on in the epistles, it's said that, that it's impossible for us to love God and hate our neighbor. So as David says, God, I want to build a house for you, God says, no, because you haven't treated people well. The way that you've treated people has disqualified you from building something 
for me. You want to write that down. The quality of our love for God is connected to the quality of our love for people. So David couldn't build the temple, but he starts storing up supplies. He starts getting stuff ready because he, he feels that God's going to let his son Solomon build the temple. And so Solomon comes into power. It's one of his first and greatest challenges is to build the temple. And he didn't build a little shack for God. He built the, the greatest, most expensive, most luxurious place for God's worship that you could possibly imagine. He wanted to make sure that even as people came and saw his palace and saw his wealth and saw his splendor, that there was no question who was truly on the throne in Israel. That God's house was greater even than the king's house. So he builds the temple. Then Solomon doesn't just build a temple. Secondly, he builds a navy. He builds a fleet of, sheep, of ships uh, in his place as king. He begins to connect with other kings. He begins to start building some relationships. And there's one king who, who he builds a special relationship with, a man named Hiram. And Hiram had a great fleet of ships. And so Solomon starts picking his brain and saying, well, how do you do this? We've never had a navy in Israel. We've always been, been people of the land. We've been shepherds and, and people of agriculture. We've never gone out and sailed and seen all this stuff. And so he picks Hiram's brain, and Hiram helps him understand how to build the ships and how to staff it and how to train the sailors and where to go and what to do as they sail. And, and for Israel, man, this, this new seafaring program, it's like, it's like NASA in the 60s. Like they're boldly going where no man has gone before, right? Like nobody's set sail out into the wild blue sea and, and seen the things that these sailors have. And, and they come back and they're treated like heroes. Man, this, that's the guy that's seen things that nobody else has seen who's been places that nobody else has been. You can imagine the kids would grow up, and, and they wanted to be sailors. They wanted to take to the seas. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, I'm going to read today from the King James 2000 version because I love the way that is this phrase. It tells us this. It says, for the king, talking of Solomon, he had at sea a navy of Tarshish. Tarshish was a city in Spain. It was the, kind of the edge of the known world. Uh, the, the, Israel is on the Mediterranean. A very small piece of it is on the Mediterranean. And so you could sail to Spain. That was kind of the tip of what they knew. And then beyond Tarshish was all the great unknown of the world. So the king had a sea, at navy a sea of Tarshish. Let me try that again. For the sea had at sea, the king had at sea, wow. Fourth time. I don't think I've ever made it to four times without reading something correctly. For the king had at sea a navy of Tarshish with the navy of Hiram. Once in three years came the navy of Tarshish, bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes, and peacocks. So they would sail out, and every three years they'd come back to port. They'd come back home, and, and they'd bring some cool stuff with them. They brought gold and silver. That's nice. They brought ivory. They even brought apes and peacocks, right? So they're, like, stocking up the zoo. Some sailor's like, I'm bringing a monkey back for my kid. I'm going to be the best dad ever. Like, he's going to be the coolest kid on the block. Then, they get, you know, the monkey bites some kid, and they get rabies, and now they're, I don't know. But uh, you can imagine the excitement as they brought all this stuff that people have never seen, right? Like, man, that's... My dad spent three years at sea, and all I got was a stupid monkey. And uh, all this stuff is happening. They're bringing back all these souvenirs, and people are so excited for all this stuff they've never seen or experienced before. Verse 23 says, So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. He asked God for wisdom, and God blessed him with the wisdom and the riches. Verse 24, And all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. So they went out 
and they traded goods. They took the greatest things that Israel had to offer, and they swapped them for the greatest things that all these foreign lands had. And it doesn't tell us where they went, but we can imagine they must have went down the coast of Africa because they came back with ivory, and they came back with apes, and they came back with peacocks, and they're seeing all these lands that they didn't even know existed and, and all these things that they didn't even know existed. And as they trade things, they don't just trade things. They start to swap ideas. They sit down and they begin to talk and they say, well, you've got to know about my king Solomon. He's got so much wisdom and he's got this amazing wealth and this palace and he built this temple. And and they don't just tell about their king. They tell about the God of their king. And all these people who never heard about God, who maybe worship other gods or maybe worship multiple gods and maybe don't have a true relationship with God, now they get to hear about the one true God because Solomon had a dream and stepped out in faith and started sending men where they'd never gone before, where they took risk and they took chances. And because of it, the, the kingdom of God begins to expand. They begin to share about God to people who'd never heard of him before. So what about the table? That's the series that we're in. Excuse me, I, I, I forgot verse 24 here. Uh, it says, all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. So they tell all these things and people start coming back. Right? So they, they go tell everybody about Israel, about the temple, about the palace, about their king, about their God. And everybody's like, i got to see it for myself. So the world starts coming to Israel. The world starts gathering in Jerusalem to come and knock at Solomon's door. And because they went out and engaged the world, now the world begins to engage them. By the way, I think that's the model for God's people. I don't think it's our job to sit here and tell the sinners, man, you need to come to church and expect them to come to church. I think the model is we go to them, and then they'll come to us. It's the way that God's put the ball in our court. Man, we, we can't just look at people who drive by on Sunday morning and be like, oh, they, need, they should be in church. No, we should go get them. We should go engage, and we should go love them. I think there's, this is the biblical model is as we go out, and we step out in faith, and we take chances, and we take risks. Then people start showing up at our door. That's what God has for us. So, so people start to come to Solomon. They start to see what he has and, and, and to see what's going on in Israel. And, and as part of this, the Bible says that, that all the kings of the world came to gaze on Solomon's riches. All the kings of the world, they heard the stories of Solomon's splendor. They heard the stories of, of the palace and the temple. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to see it for myself. And so all the most influential, most important people in the world show up at the door of King Solomon. And the Bible doesn't tell us how all these experiences went. It doesn't tell us how, how they went. It actually only tells us about one of them. It tells us about someone named the Queen of Sheba and her visit to Jerusalem. And so since it's the only one that the Bible tells us about, I imagine this is probably how most of the, the experiences went. When most of the kings and queens and leaders of the world showed up in Jerusalem, I imagine it went something like this. And it actually tells us about this just a little bit earlier in 1 Kings chapter 10, starting in verse 4. It says, when the Queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built, verse 5, and the food on his table. Now remember this. So verse 5 starts with the food on his table. And so everything that's going to come after is going to be connected back to the table. Watch this. And the seating of his servants. Where were the servants seated? At his table. And the attendance of his ministers, the waiters. Where were they waiting at? Where were they ministering at? At the table. Their apparel, the stuff they wore at the table. And his cupbearers who were bearing cups at the table. And his entryway by which he went up into the house of the Lord says there was no more spirit in her. The NIV puts it this way. She was overwhelmed. She was, she was blown away. 
I can't believe it. If you read on in 1 Kings chapter 10, and we don't have time to do it this morning, but, but I encourage you to read it this week. Just, there's just a few verses that's going to go on, and she's going to talk. And she's going to tell us, you know what, I came here expecting this to be a disappointment. People came, and they bragged on how great this was, and I thought, there's no way it's better than what I've got. There's no way your palace is better than my palace. There's no way your temple is better than my temple. There's no way your God is better than my God. There's no way. So I came here defiant. I came here to prove you wrong. I, I kind of respect the Queen of Sheba because I'm kind of like that. I'm a little cynical sometimes. And when somebody, like, builds their thing up or talks, you know, when somebody's, like, a big fan of a team, I'm the guy who starts rooting against that team. Like, I'm a terrible person, right? Like, I just, I'm just, that's how I roll. Uh, and so I kind of respect this. And Sheba hears, hears this and she's like, nah, it ain't even like that, dude. Let me come and show you what. And she shows up and she says, I was wrong. She said, they didn't even tell me the half of it. This is more than twice as great as anything I expected. And she even goes on, this, this heathen lady, in verse 9, she makes this de- declaration. She says, blessed be the Lord your God. I got no more fight in me. I thought my God was better. I thought I had it figured out. I thought what we had was better than what anybody else had. But I came and I saw Solomon's table. I came and I saw his servants. I came and I saw this place. And you know what? I got no fight in me. I have no spirit left in me. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm blown away. What you have is great. Blessed be the Lord your God. Here's what I want you to see as we finish up this series today. We've seen that, that at the table we are one. We've seen how when we come to the table we see things differently. We see God differently. We see each other differently. Last week we saw how, how we were all crippled and, and, and sinful And Jesus actually carried us to the table. The only reason we even show up at the king's table is because God brought us there. But once we've been brought there, we're not crippled and sinful anymore. Now we've been made right. We've been healed and we're restored. Here's what I want you to see today as we finish up this series. The table has the power to turn the human heart. The table has the power to actually change the human heart. King Sheba sits down at Solomon's table. And she goes from this opinion very strongly and she does a 180, and she walks out of there with a completely different opinion. You see, when we engage people over the table, when we're generous to people, when we are hospitable to people, when we're willing to serve people, there's actually a chance to change the human heart. It's an amazing, incredible thing. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Solomon's table. It does tell us a few things besides what we see here in First Kings chapter 10. In fact, if we just go back six chapters in first Kings chapter four, we find out something that I think is really interesting about King Solomon's table. We know that we find out it wasn't just a, a break, breakfast nook at the corner of the, of the King's banquet room. It's pretty impressive. First Kings chapter four says this, says the district governors each in his month supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the King's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. You see King Solomon's table wasn't just the table of the king. It was the table, literally, of the nation. The nation was split into different districts, uh, and we imagine it's probably split by the, the 12 tribes of Israel, and each district had its own governor, had its own government, who, who was kind of under King Solomon, and their job was they took turns. Once One month a year, it's our job to stock up the king's table. We're going to send the best stuff from our part of the country. We're going we're gonna to get the greatest things that we can to bless people, whoever sits down at King Solomon's table. They all contributed. They all pulled together. They all sacrificed to make sure there was something great at the king's table. Here's what I love so much as, as we read this and, and we look at this. Here's what, what I thought as we were back in L.A. And, 
And I heard this message, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. This is how we're finishing this series. You see, City Church has a table. And our table is Mission OB. Our table is Mission OB. Just as they, they all pulled together and they all sacrificed. So there was something at King Solomon's table. We all pull together and we all contribute to make Mission OB happen. Some of you guys brought turkeys this morning. You went out, maybe you, you did like me, and you procrastinated all week, and you went this morning on your way in. You went to Kroger, and you grabbed a turkey. Maybe you're still procrastinating, and you're planning on getting it before 2 o'clock. Maybe you've had it for a few days, but, but we went out and bought turkeys. Uh, we, man, Mark and Risa went and, and picked up all the other supplies for us this week, all the sides. They, they made that sacrifice from their time and their energy, and all that. So they got all that stuff donated for us, taken care of, which is awesome. Uh, maybe you brought clothes, you dug through your closet and you figured out what can I get rid of, what, what can I sacrifice to, to bless somebody else that's going to be cold this time of year. We didn't know it was actually going to be cold the exact day that we do the clothing giveaway for the winter. Like it's going to time it just right. You're freezing in your house, come get some clothes. Uh, we didn't know that it was going to come together quite like that, but we all pull together and we give, we, we sacrifice in our giving. That giving makes it possible for us to do all the stuff that we do. You see, Mission OBE is the table of City Church. King Solomon's table was the table of their nation. Well, well, man, if you're a, a football fan, you know there's like, there's Raider Nation and Steeler Nation and Rebel, you know, every, every team's got their own nation. Well, I think it's okay for us to say we got City Church Nation. Man, and that Mission OB is the table of City Church Nation. It's the place where, where we serve all those who God gives us an opportunity to reach. It's, it's where we walk out the, the motto, the mission of our church, which is reaching our city by reaching one. What does that mean? It means that we want to grow. It means we believe that we're called to reach a city, that we're called to be a blessing to this city. But in the process of growing, God's going to put people in front of us, and we're going to treat every single one of those people like they're the one that God has called us to reach. No matter their color, no matter their language, no matter their education, no matter their financial class, no matter if they look good or smell good or don't. Whoever God sets in our path. Whoever God brings in our doors, whoever shows up to get closed, whatever door we knock on, that's the person God's calling us to reach. We're going to reach our city by reaching one. Proverbs eleven eleven, the verse that we founded this ministry on, says, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. In other words, if, if we're the upright, we're the ones who are right with God, not because of us, but because of him, the city where we are should be better because we're here. It's the whole purpose of Mission OB, that we're going to leave our mark in Olive Branch. As long as God has a church in Olive Branch, Olive Branch should be better because this church exists. And that's why we're called, we're compelled to get out of the walls of our church and to go make a difference. You see, Solomon's table is, is ultimately a picture of service. It's a picture of service. If you go back to what Queen Sheba said about the table, it's, it's really interesting to me. Or it's, and not what she said, but what it says as, as she came to the table. It says she saw the food on his table, verse 5. And then it's not really about the table anymore. And then the seating of his servants, the attendance of the ministers, their apparel, their Mission OB shirts, and his cupbearers. What, what, what blew Sheba away? It wasn't just the table. And it wasn't the food at the table. It was the people who were serving at the table. That's great news for us because that means even if you couldn't afford a frozen turkey, even if you didn't have any clothes to spare, it doesn't mean you don't get to be a part of serving the table of Mission OB. What's important isn't even what's on the table. We're going to find some new things and some new ways to bless people and some other stuff to give away. And, and we do free car washes and the 4th of July. We give away Kool-Aid and lemonade and sweet tea and a little city church cup. And, and we find different ways to be a blessing to our city. But it ain't even about that stuff. 
What's that stuff do? It opens the door for people who are lost, who are last, who are least to encounter the people of God. The power of Mission OB isn't in what we give away. It's in who is doing the giving away. It's God's people serving at the table. Sheba was blown away. Yes, by the table. Yes, the stuff that's given away matters because it opens the door. But it was the people who made the difference. It was the people who impacted her. It was the people who inspired her. It was the people that took her breath away. As you go out there today and you knock on some doors, as you hand out some clothes, as you pray with somebody, know that you are an extension of the table of the king. You are representing the king, and he is sending you to be his administrator, to be his representative, to be, to be his person to show up in the life of somebody and just simply serve. The power of mission OB is when we get together and we serve. So Solomon's table is a picture of service, number one. But Solomon's table, number two, is also a picture of reconciliation. It's a picture of reconciliation. The worship team is going to come down. Don't let them distract you. Stay with me here. We've got a few minutes left. But catch this. If the Bible says, and, and it does say, that all the kings and queens and leaders of the world came to King Solomon to eat at his table, then if we think about this for a second, what that necessarily means is the same kings or their sons or their, their, their descendants that King David fought on the battlefield now came and sat in the seat of honor at Solomon's table. And if you're like me, that, that's kind of hard in your flesh to imagine your enemies at your table. Just imagine being an older soldier in Solomon's army, that, that you're old enough that you actually fought alongside King David. And you went out to war with these neighboring kings and these neighboring empires, and, and you fought them, and perhaps in the war, your brother died, or your friend lost an arm, or, or your dad passed away. And that king, that person is is responsible for this deep wound in your family, this deep wound in your life. Now you've been promoted. You're you're the palace guard for King Solomon. You're one of his most trusted men because daddy trusted you. So now I can trust you. And here you are guarding Solomon's table for the enemy that killed your father, that harmed your brother. Imagine the emotions that those men had to deal with as these people that their whole life they viewed them as enemies. Now they came and they didn't just sit down with their king, but they sat in the seat of honor. I guarantee you it challenged their flesh. I guarantee you it was difficult for them to wrestle with. But isn't it just like our God to prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies? See, those words come from the book of Psalms as well. And those were written by King David. See, David said that that you prepare a table for me in the presence of our enemies. And and I don't know this for sure. You're going to have to indulge me for just a minute. But but here's what I think happened. David was, was a warrior, but he was also, he was a poet. He was a musician. And he was a loving father. And and I imagine David as as Solomon, the son of his, uh, of. Bathsheba, this wife that he loved so much, his favorite child. Imagine as Solomon was young, David pulled out his harp and played some lullabies for little Solomon. And I imagine Psalm 23 was probably one of his favorite lullabies. 
And he sings this, he confesses this over his son, that our God will prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Then then Solomon starts to grow up, and he gets to be a teenager, and and he doesn't know yet that he's going to be the wisest man in the world, or even that he's going to be the king. And so he says, Dad, I I want a little help impressing the ladies. Will you teach me how to play the harp like you do? And so David sits down with his son. He says, I'm going to teach you how to play the harp, the, the meanest harp there ever was. And, and he begins to teach him to play the harp. He says, you know what? I wrote this, this song years ago, decades ago, but, but it's nice and it's short and it's simple. So let's, let's start on Psalm 23. And he sits down at the harp with his son and they sing the 23rd song. And, and Solomon actually sings out the words that, God, you prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. And that truth begins to drive down in Solomon's heart. You see that God's word never returns void. It's planted in the heart of David's son. And David's son one day grows up and he becomes the king. And he becomes the most powerful, the most rich man in the, in the world. And in the midst of this, God says, you're going to be a, God, a king of peace, not a king of warfare. And I'm going to start sending your daddy's enemies to sit at your table. And you're going to prepare a table literally in the presence of the men that used to be your enemies. You see, the table is a picture of serving, but it's also a picture of reconciliation. Growing up, I I had the privilege to to know a few men and meet a few men who had fought in World War II. And I'm I'm a big fan of the greatest generation. I believe that World War II is one of the the proudest moments in our nation's history. What, the, the way that our men sacrificed and women and, and destroying the great evil of the Nazis. I mean, something to be proud of. There's a lot of things in America that I'm not always proud of, but that's something for us to be proud of. But I remember talking to some of these men, and, and, and a couple of them sometimes would make comments. They'd see somebody driving a Japanese car, and, and I can't drive a Japanese car. And, like, I have nothing but American vehicles. I'm all for buying American. I, I think supporting our economy, that's great. But if you have a Japanese car, I don't think you're like a sinner. Uh, but, but they would be really upset. And, and why were they upset? Because to them, the Japanese were the enemy. I fought against them in World War II. Those people tried to kill me. They were enemies. And what were they doing? They were still fighting a battle from five decades ago, six decades ago, seven decades ago. And here's what I feel like, like God wants me to say today. Many of you are going to gather on Thursday or perhaps Wednesday or perhaps Friday. In fact, I talked to one family today. They can't come to Mission OB because family member has to work Thursday, so they're doing their Thanksgiving today. So many of us are going to gather around a Thanksgiving table, around a, a table of celebration this week with somebody that we're still fighting a battle from, from years ago. And instead of looking forward to that meal, you're dreading it because you know you got to sit down next to your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or this person who, who hurt you, this person who betrayed you, this person who neglected you, this, this in-law who didn't want you to marry their daughter or, or whatever the situation is. And I want to challenge you this morning as you come to the table this week to re-address the possibility that God wants you to be an agent of reconciliation. That God actually has the ability to reconcile old enemies. That he actually has the ability to take those who used to be your enemy and let you sit down at peace with them. Don't be the old soldier who's still bitter about what happened 10 years ago or 30 years ago or three months ago. Let that old wound die. 
Let that old hurt be released, even if they never said they're sorry, even if they never admitted it was their fault. Just let it go because we serve a God who prepares a table for us of reconciliation. And this week, I believe many of us will come to a table that needs some reconciliation. And it starts with us. It starts with God's people. Even if that other person is a Christian too, don't wait on them to make the first move to say, you know what? This week, I'm believing that God can start reconciliation. And for some, it can happen this week. And for some, it maybe it's a, a process that starts this week that's going to take some time. I can't promise you the results, but I can promise you this. We serve a God who is great enough. We serve a God who is strong enough. We serve a God who believes in reconciliation. We serve a God who wants to bring peace. He said, no, I'm not going to let the warrior king who has slayed many be the one who builds my temple. I'm going to let the king of peace be the one who builds my temple because the quality of my love for others will always determine the quality of my love for him. And this week, God's people have a chance to bring reconciliation. This week, we have that opportunity. Martin Luther King Jr. said this in his I have a dream speech, perhaps the, the most famous speech in the history of our nation, perhaps one of the most influential speeches in the history of our nation. He said this. He said, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. What an awesome dream. What an awesome statement that these people who used to be enemies, these people who used to push back against each other, that their kids would sit down together at the table of brotherhood, the table of reconciliation. I believe our nation needs some reconciliation. And I believe it starts with us. And we're not going to see restoration in our nation if we can't at least start with restoration in our families. So this week, it's on us. Now, hopefully you're in the family that doesn't have any reconciliation and everything's great and you can't wait for Thanksgiving and you got off easy this week. There's some other stuff you can get reconciliation in. But I know there's a lot of us who didn't. There's a lot of us who, man, the Thanksgiving table represents a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And we're going to be the people who bring reconciliation. Amen? Because the table is a place of service and it's a place, a picture of reconciliation. Would you pray with me?